This morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can begin turning there in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read the passage we've been in for a while. We've been studying a verse or some phrases at a time and then jumping out into other passages related to the same topic. But we'll be in this for a little bit uh, today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Here's what God says through the Apostle Paul. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, we pray our study this morning would be profitable to us, and you would equip us to serve you, to obey you, and to teach your truth to others. In Jesus' name, amen. From the moment you were born, your life was a journey of learning self-control. Inside your mother's womb, everything's automated. You got oxygen, you got nutrients, waste was taken care of all by itself, by the grace of God and the wonder of a womb. But the moment you came out into this world, you began a journey of learning how to control your body. As a baby, you had to learn to latch or drink from a bottle. You learned how to lift your head. You learned how to roll over. These are the things every new parent is clapping over and celebrating and filming. You learned how to open and close your hand. You learned how to use that hand to bring things to your mouth. You learned to crawl one way or another. You learned to stand. And then you learned to walk. But even that was not the end of your journey, right? You then, as you grew, had to learn all kinds of other things that we do every day. You learned to use the bathroom instead of a diaper. You learned to brush your teeth. You learned to put on your own clothes. You learned to tie your own shoes. And you learned how to eat a meal without making a big mess. Some of us are still learning that. These are all normal things that take place as a person grows up. Growing up is essentially learning how to use and control your own body. 
Behind those skills, however, the broader goal is not just so that you would be autonomous or independent one day. The broader goal is that you would grow into a person who serves God and serves others. With that broader goal in mind, we need to recognize that learning to master your body never ends. Even after our childhood years are behind us, we need to learn self-control so we could learn to love others and love God. We spent our childhood years learning how to walk physically, but now as Christians, we are continuing to learn how to walk with Christ. And the dangers of falling are worse. When the Apostle Paul wrote this initial letter to the Thessalonian church, he told them directly, we have it in verse three here of chapter four, he told them what God's will is for them. He said, this is God's will, your sanctification. That was true for the Thessalonians and that is true for every person today. God's will for your life, what God wants from you, God's path to blessing and effectiveness is that you be sanctified. Our lives are supposed to reflect the holiness of God. Sanctification is the process of being holy. We're positionally holy in Christ by believing in him, by our faith in him, but practically we're trying to show that more and more. That's sanctification. And one key application of sanctification is sexual purity. What does it look like to be sexually pure? What does it mean to be holy in that regard? What does it mean to be sanctified? Paul, writing under the guidance and the moving of the Holy Spirit, gives three expressions of that kind of holiness. And they all start, at least in the ESV, with the word that. Uh, Verse three says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Number one, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That means in your own life, in your mind, in your speech, in your actions, you are to stay away from whatever deviates from God's design for sex and romantic intimacy. And we've said this already, God's design is that sexual intimacy be expressed only between a man and his wife. Sexual uh, uh, activity is confined to that relationship alone, and the purpose of it is mutual connection, mutual service, mutual joy. Outside of that relationship and outside of that purpose, God says, stay away. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says to the church, flee from sexual morality, run away from it. And then Paul said in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he said, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be set apart. You abstain from sexual morality. That's the negative side, we could say, of holiness and sanctification. You stay away from that. The positive side we come to now is verse four. This is what holiness looks like. Verse four, he says, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Before we look at that a little more closely, I just want to finish the list of the three expressions and give you the third one, which we probably will get to um, uh, next year once the service schedule changes. The first expression of sanctification is abstaining from sexual morality. The second is the control of your own body. Those are 
personal expressions or private expressions of holiness. The third expression comes in verse six, and this one is about how we relate to others. Verse six says that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Those are the expressions. Our focus today is the middle one, the positive one, verse four, that we control our bodies in holiness and honor. If you have an ESV, you might have the footnote there that says another possible translation is that each one acquire a wife or literally possess his vessel. This is one commentator said the, 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 the trickiest verse. Thessalonians is not a difficult uh, book in terms of translating, understanding, not tough theology, but this is probably the trickiest verse in the book, in the letter. I don't want to spend too much time, but I think it's just important to address because of, uh, just to answer some of those questions you might have. The challenge that comes in verse four is that you have two words that have two possible meanings or interpretations. So the first word is the verb, which we have as, as, a, as a translation here is control. It could mean control. It could also mean to obtain, to, to possess. The second word that's a little ambiguous for us is the noun, which literally means vessel. I think New American Standard says vessel or instrument. It's something you use. And when Paul says vessel, that's the literal direct translation. The question is, is he referring to your body or part of your body, or is he referring to a wife? You take two words with two different options, that gives you four options. It doesn't really make sense that Paul would say, in this context, you need to learn how to control your wife. And it doesn't make sense for Paul to say you have to learn how to, you should know how to obtain a body. That doesn't make sense either. So the two remaining options are Paul is either saying you need to learn, you need to know how to obtain a wife, or learn how to control your body. This is not something to split the church over. There are commentators, though, and translators on both sides. And some believe that Paul is urging here, particularly the men of the church, to pursue sanctification by finding a wife and then treating her with holiness and honor. And that's not an unbiblical teaching. That would be in line with what 1 Corinthians says. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about people who aren't married yet. And Paul says where there is passion, you don't want to burn with passion, get married. The pursuit of a wife, marriage, the, 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 the following of God's design in marriage is a protection against sexual morality. Those who think that's what Paul has in mind here also will point to 1 Peter where the word vessel is used for the wife. It says, husbands, live your wives in an understanding way and honor her as a weaker vessel. But when you look at that passage in 1 Peter, it's interesting because he doesn't say that she's a weak vessel. She says she's the weaker vessel, meaning the husband is also a vessel. He's a weak one. She's a weaker vessel. So the word isn't strictly, the word vessel doesn't have to be strictly confined to a wife. And that's what you find in the rest of the New Testament. In other parts, um, Paul, remember Ananias? Paul loses his sight. Ananias is chosen by God to minister to him in those three days. And he says, go find, at the time his name is Saul, he is, he is a chosen vessel of mine. So it's used for a man there. And you see the same thing in 2 Corinthians and uh, 2 Timothy. Paul refers to people as vessels. He says it also in Romans 9. These are vessels made by God, speaking of people. So I think the best understanding of vessel is a body, which is what the ESV has. And, and so if, the, if that word refers to the body, then I think the best understanding of the verb is to control, to, to possess your body. In order to be sanctified, you need to learn how to control your body. And Paul gives two words here. He says, do so in holiness or in sanctification and in honor. In holiness 
and honor. Those are the key words of verse four. That's how you are to control your body. Holiness is the recognition that your body belongs to God. To be holy is to be set apart. God gave you the body, gave you your physical body, and as a Christian, you've been set apart from the world, and that needs to be shown in the way you use your body. The second word there is honor, and honor speaks of value, worth. This is a recognition that your body is not meaningless. Your body has inherent worth. Your body was created by God. God made actually the body first, and then he breathed the breath of life into the man. Your body was created by God. It's part of who you are. What you do with your body matters, and you need to act that way. Your body is not a toy. Your body is not a meaningless appendage to your existence. Your body, Paul said, is the temple of the Lord. So again, he says, you need to control your body in holiness and in honor. Paul's intent here, based on the way the verb is used too, is not a one-time command like, oh, I did it. I learned how to do it. This is an ongoing thing. This is a daily battle, a daily struggle. This is the pursuit of the Christian life. We're always growing. Your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, and the rest of your body, we're learning to keep them in control. The Roman culture, the pagan Gentiles, had this idea that the body didn't matter. You're a soul, and they even said, the body is the prison of the soul, and so it's, 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 it's extra. It's like, it's like the shell of a, of a walnut. You just throw it away. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. And that kind of mentality led to all kinds of wickedness and immorality, and it was connected even to their religious practices. There was, in the Roman Empire, temples to Aphrodite, and this is what Paul makes reference in, in his letter to the Corinthians. The priestesses of the temple of Aphrodite were essentially prostitutes. And you would go in and you would worship by communing with the priestess. Paul points to that kind of mentality in verse five. In, in contrast to the holiness and the honor with which we are to control our bodies, he says there is, verse five, the passion of lust which belongs to the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, the Thessalonians are Gentiles, but he's using here in, in, in a broader sense. Gentile refers to an unbeliever. They're characterized by the passion of lust. And Paul says, don't do that. He's not saying we're not allowed to have passion. He's not saying we're not allowed to have desire. Again, God created our bodies. He created physical intimacy, and that includes all the corresponding emotional and physical responses. But what Paul is saying is that unlike the unbelievers, unlike the pagan world, those desires, those drives, those impulses need to be controlled. And what a contrast that would make for the church compared to the pagan world. How does the message of God compare today with the message of the world concerning your body and human sexuality? We have music, we have TV and movies, we even have government-sponsored education telling us that our sexuality should define us as a person. It's been elevated to the highest attribute of who you are and we are told we are to let it run its course. If anyone tries to stop you, they're the dangerous ones. That's the message of the world. 
according to the word of Christ, that worldly message, that pleasure-seeking, that hedonistic philosophy is driven by an ignorance of God and a rebellion against his design. That's what he says at the end of verse five. It's a passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. They're ignorant of him and they don't have an intimate relationship with God. So in the same way that we would tell a child, a young child, not to run with scissors or to be patient as he waits for dinner, we need to remind ourselves that sexual desire requires restraint. Your bodily functions and your physical desires are not supposed to control you or dominate you. You're supposed to control them. That's true for anger. That's true for hunger. And it's true for sexual desire as well. Just like a little kid needs to learn to use the bathroom and just like we, they need to learn to, to eat properly, we need to learn to control ourselves. Like many other passages, 1 Thessalonians 4.4 is not difficult to understand. The difficulty is in obeying it. How do we learn control over our bodies? How do we grow in that? James, just speaking more generically, says if you can control your tongue, you can control everything in, in your body. You have perfect control. No one can tame the tongue, he says. How do, we, how do we grow in this? That's an important question to ask and to have an answer for at every stage in life. It's important in the younger years when your body's priming up for marriage. It's important especially if you've developed in your life and in your mind some type of habit or pattern that dishonors God. And it's important for those of you who are going to be examples to the younger ones and teach the next generation. We need to teach them how to control their bodies. This is an ongoing daily struggle. And so for the rest of our time, I wanted to expand on that question, not so much from Thessalonians, but just from the rest of scripture and say, what principles speak to helping us do this? We know what we should do. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 says, but how do we do it? What can we do to learn and to get better at controlling our bodies in holiness and honor? And summarizing what to do, I've as far as I know, it might change by next week, but I have 10 principles I'd like to give you. 10 principles for controlling your body, and as you might imagine, we don't have time to go through them all today, so I'm planning to do two of them, and then we'll continue next week, and then we'll take a break for Christmas and New Year, then we'll come back after that. 10 principles, biblical, practical wisdom for how to control our body with regard to sexual purity. And before I start the list, I wanna give you two caveats. The first is that you're gonna have, there is gonna be overlap. These are things that are connected to one another. There are connections between these principles, and that's a good thing. The Christian life is not supposed to be compartmentalized. You're gonna see some principles overlap, but I've chosen these 10 for now because I think each one is important enough to stand on its own and to be helpful to you. Maybe saying it a different way or approaching this from a different angle just brings it to your mind and is profitable for you. A second caveat related to that is that what I'm gonna say and what we're gonna cover really for most of you isn't gonna be anything new. But it is going to be a specific application of biblical principles in this area of life. And in that way, it'll be one, an important reminder for us, an encouragement in this area, but it also is a helpful way to teach others these things, particularly our younger ones. 
So with those caveats out of the way, let's out of the way, let's start this list. What can you and I do to make progress in purity? Principle number one is this, and this is undergirding Paul's letter. First principle is this, embrace the gospel. This is the starting point. You need to embrace the gospel. This is the starting point for everything about the Christian life. Paul wrote these instructions, and he's not writing to the Thessalonian citizens. He's writing to the Thessalonian church. The people to whom he's writing had already committed themselves to serve Christ. They'd already received the gospel. And so if you're here and you're hearing this and it's only, this is Christian, you know, this is, this is like traditional teachings about morals and ethics, you need to realize that's not what this is. And when you talk to other people about these things, you need to realize that's not what this is either. You, no one should leave this message or even a conversation they have with you and just think, okay, I'm gonna try my, be- my best to try to obey some biblical command. The starting point needs to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ is the message of how someone is saved. Honoring all of God's commands, doing your best to try to obey God isn't going to gain salvation. And if you've been listening to the series, you know that none of us can obey this command because God's commands regarding sexual purity aren't aimed at your body, they're aimed at the heart and at the mind. They're impossible to obey in our own strength. We have all failed because we fall short of God's glory. God's requirement is to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. God wants from us perfect love. He wants from us perfect obedience and the reality is none of us have done that. So the starting point of the gospel is the bad news that we deserve God's judgment. The good news is that God sent Jesus Christ. Christ came to live the perfect life that we could never live, and then, as God's perfect sacrifice, he dies to trade places with sinners. He bore in himself on the cross the wrath of God, and then he credits to all those who are his, his perfect righteousness. And we know on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He came out of the tomb in demonstration of his perfect victory over death and over sin, And his call since that day to the entire world is that you repent of sin and that you trust in him. He is the judge. He will come, like we read in Isaiah. He will come. He will be known as King of kings, Lord of lords. He is that now, but the world will see it and they will recognize it. And he will judge the living and the dead. But if you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you call out for mercy, he will save you. He will transform you And to use the words of Paul, he'll make you a new creation. That's the gospel. There is forgiveness and there is transformation. God gives to his own the power to fight against sin and he does that by giving them his Holy Spirit. You're no longer a slave to sin, you're a slave of God, you're a child of God. And for those of you who've already made that decision, who've already entrusted your life to Christ, you have to recognize that the gospel is not supposed to be, oh, I did that already. I know the gospel, it's past. It's supposed to be every day. We're supposed to remind ourselves about these things every day. You wake up, the gospel, as one author said, the gospel is for sinners, and we need to tell ourselves every day, we're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Like, like, like we sang, a prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So what do I need? I need the gospel. I need Jesus every day. 
I need to confess my sinful thoughts. I need to confess my sinful words, my sinful actions. I confess them and I repent. And when the temptations come, we need to remind ourselves that we're no longer the same person that we used to be. We've been transformed. That's what, Paul, that's what Peter says to them. You're, that was the old you. Paul says the old man, the new man. Peter says the same thing. This was the old life. Jesus died for your sin, and in him you died to sin. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my master. He has cleansed me. He has washed me, and he is empowering me to obey him. I will stand before him in judgment one day. I will give an account And because of his grace and through my faith, he will bring me into eternal joy. You gotta tell yourself that every day. You have to embrace the gospel. Because even in sin, God has the victory. You take David's sin with Bathsheba. There's a a child comes as a result. The child dies. The next child is Solomon. That's the next king. You take Rahab, who was a prostitute, she surrenders her life to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and she enters into, you read in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. Because God is a God who saves and forgives and cleanses. That's the gospel. God has transformed you. You need to embrace that every day. You're a sinner, but you have a huge, good God who walks with you. The second principle is this. We need to elevate God's design. Elevate God's design. They're not all gonna start with E, so don't, don't, don't get too excited. Elevate God's design. What I mean by that is you need to do more than simply understand God's word and God's design. You need to prize it. You need to hold it up and esteem it. You need to value it for what it is. You might talk to people or you might see in the media, whether it's TV or movie, talk, people talk about Christian morality, Christian ethics, and they give the impression that God is anti-sex, anti-intimacy, anti-romance, anti-emotions. And that is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us God's design, one, so we would know it, but also so we would embrace it and prize it. Genesis chapter one, in his own image, he created male and female. He made their bodies. He is the one who put Adam to sleep, made the woman, and then brought her to him so that he would delight in his new wife. Sex was God's idea. He invented it. He designed it. He's the one at the end of Genesis chapter two that said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Jesus repeated that in Matthew 19. That's the design. And at the end of Genesis two, it says, the man and the woman were there and they were both naked and they were both neither and they were not ashamed. This is God's design. God's design included boundaries, included limits, 
But the intent of those boundaries was not to stifle or to repress his people. God's intent was to protect his people and to preserve the purity and the purpose of the gift he had given them. It's the same reason famous paintings or historical documents get put behind thick glass. It's not because there's something bad in them. It's because the glass preserves it. The glass enables this to be enjoyed and to be effective for years and decades. God's design is that a man and his wife would be joyfully united, and we need to embrace that. We need to prize it. We're in the Christmas season now, and so you get all the Christmas songs, and the songs are usually about winter, or for some reason, romance is part of Christmas songs. And the culture tells us now that the height of romance right now is a boyfriend and a girlfriend frolicking in the snow or kissing by the fireplace. And we need to hear that and respond by saying, no, that is not God's intent for romance. That is a bad imitation of the original. That's counterfeit. God's design was a man and his wife. God's picture, the picture we have in the Bible of a husband and his wife is not two people bored with each other, but two people who connect physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. They connect and there is a relationship in which they are serving and submitting and loving for the glory of God. That's what Ephesians 5 says. All this, he says, was a mystery because it refers to Christ and the church. The love and the joy between a man and his wife gives to the world a picture of the love of Christ and the joy the church has. So whenever you see sexuality ripped out of the context of marriage, you have to say, and you need to train your family to say, that's wrong. And whenever marriage is presented as a second-rate option, like, oh, they settled. There was a lot of joy when they were young, but then they finally settled and got married. We say, no, it's, that's wrong too. Marriage and the physical intimacy that accompanies it is God's beautiful design, and we need to elevate that. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it says that a newlywed man was excused for one year from serving in the military or any public duty. And it specifically says he will not serve for a year because that year is dedicated to the happiness of his new home. So he may be joyful with his wife. That's God's design, that a husband and wife enjoy one another, get to know one another. There's a little picture of that in Genesis 26. It's, it's Isaac. He's traveling to the land of the Philistines. This is Abraham's son, Isaac. At the time, he's married to Rebekah. And the Bible says she was a very attractive woman. Because of her beauty, Isaac takes a card out of his, a page out of his dad's playbook and lies and says, no, no, she's my sister. Because if they knew that he was her husband, the men might kill him thinking, I'll take her as my wife because she's so beautiful. Well, one day it says the king of the Philistines looks out his window and he sees Isaac and Rebekah playing around. And it's somewhat tricky to translate. The, the word literally can mean laugh. I think King James says sporting with his wife. Some translations say caressing, which isn't the best translation. They're laughing, they're playing. I, I think the way I imagine it is they're giggling. So Isaac is having some kind of fun with his wife, and it leads the king of the family to say, Isaac, come here. He says, She's not your sister, she's your wife. 
He knew that because of the way they were enjoying each other's company. God did not intend that kind of giggly romance for junior high kids. He intended it for a man and his wife. Being married is not supposed to be the end of romance. It's supposed to be the beginning of it. The joy of marriage is why the father of Proverbs tells his son, go find a wife and delight in her. Proverbs, he says it in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Chapters five, in chapter 5, the father says, stay away from the adulterous woman. Stay away from the woman who is not your wife. You, speaking metaphorically, says, drink water from your own well. Rejoice in your own wife. Delight in her, he says. And then he says, be intoxicated in her love. What an interesting word to use. Intoxicated. Not thinking straight. This father does not want his son to have a boring life. And there are many warnings against being drunk. The point is he wants his son to be captivated and exhilarated with his bride. And if you want to expand on that theme, you have the entire book dedicated to it. That's the Song of Solomon. It's a love song about a young couple, and it speaks of the time before leading up to their wedding and after the wedding. This is a couple delighting. There are some frustrations there. There's a little romance going on, a little tension, but there's a frustration. But, in the, but they're delighting in one another's company. And in the first part, they're saying, do not awaken love, do not awaken love. All these feelings are here. Hold on, hold on, there's restraint. But then the wedding comes. And they delight not just in one another's company, but also in one another's bodies. They compare their joy in one another to the joys of nature. You have all these agricultural uh, metaphors. They compare the joy in one another to the joy of satisfying food. Maybe it's not as appealing to us, but today we have candy and chocolate. They take the best of their culture and say, that is what it's like to be with you. The man in, in, in Song of Solomon 4 compares his bride to a private, secluded garden filled with all kinds of beautiful smells and sights and delights just for him. That's God's design. When you elevate that beautiful design, you help rip yourself away from the cheap imitations that this world offers. How many of you enjoy a really good steak? A really good brisket? A really good burger? And how do you feel about meat substitutes? I don't know how long ago it was. McDonald's had, I forgot the name now, one of those fake burgers, and then some months after, they, they pulled it because it wasn't selling, and, and, and we all gave, and the men go, yes, as, as it should be. Who's buying Beyond Meat? Who is buying Impossible Whoppers? These things are imitating meat, but they're made with vegetables. Some things are made with insects, like crickets, and now they have scientists working to grow cuts of meat in a lab. And it's not even appetizing because it's fake. Or maybe some of you like real sugar, like me, and real cream or real milk. And so I'm gonna choose that. My, my, I drink tea. My tea comes with cream and sugar if I had my way. No creamers, no artificial sweeteners, no soy milk, no almond milk, just the real thing. For those of you who enjoy the real thing, those things have no appeal. 
And in a similar way, we need to elevate God's true original design so that when the opportunity is there for something else, we say no. And we don't even have to say no thank you, just no. That's not God's design. That's not for me. Yes, um, those of you young men, God gave you desires. He gave them so that you would be drawn and pulled to your wife to serve her and to love her. You young guys, you're not married yet. It feels like there's a frustration because all these desires start coming. That's from God, and those desires are there to move you to get married. Find a job. Be responsible. Learn to serve others and then get married and serve your wife. That's what men should be aiming for who have that physical desire. Find a wife, love her the way Christ loves the church. That's what it is to be a man. That's what it is to exalt, to lift up, to elevate God's design. Marriage is not settling. Marriage is the standard. Marriage is a gift. And so we have the words of Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Even those who aren't married. First Corinthians 7 speaks to the people who aren't gonna get married. There's a, there's a gift from God or in God's timing, they're not married at the time. They are still to elevate marriage, to hold that as, as honorable. When you're not married, Paul says there's no distraction. There isn't th- this, um, uh, this, this use of time in this relationship. But the general design in culture is that men and women get marriage. Let marriage be held in honor. Elevate that among all. And then the author says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. In elevating God's design, we cast away all that falls away from that. That's fake, that's cheap, that's counterfeit. Elevate God's design. Well, we're through that a lot faster than I thought we'd be, and that's okay. We're just gonna cover those two today. Lord willing, we'll continue it next time. But the point is, giving some practical principles to how we grow, how we progress in purity, and how we learn self-control. Those of you parents, you're talking to your, your kids as they grow, you talk more about this. The important part is what we've said tonight. You start with the gospel. Teach them to embrace the gospel. They're gonna fall, there is forgiveness, there is, there is cleansing but hold up for them God's righteous and perfect standard. Make sure your kids know that you're on their side and God's on their side and you're in the same battle they are. The battle's different when you're 65, when you're 35, when you're 25, when you're 15. It's a different battle, but it's the same battle. We're learning to control our bodies for the glory of God and we should be thankful that he's on our side. Let's pray. I'm gonna, we're gonna wrap up our time with uh, reflection. So give you a chance to pray. If you wanna jot something down, do that. If you wanna pray with someone with you or your family members, do that. Just a short time and then I'll close with a, a final prayer and then we'll dismiss with this song. Let's respond to what we've heard today. Father, we're grateful that your desire 
is for our good, for our true joy, our true satisfaction. And you created this world so that we as men and women would honor you and be fulfilled in you and fulfill your purposes. And that included sexual intimacy between a man and his wife. That included having a body that is meant to serve, to serve others. But in this specific way, Father, we confess how far our own culture and our own minds are from your standard. Teach us to walk in holiness and honor. Remind us that we have been bought with a price and our bodies are not our own. Remind us that when we sin in sexual ways, he who sins in those ways sins against his own body. This culture tells us that our body doesn't matter. This culture tells us we can do whatever we want with our bodies. We're in charge. And all that leads to is more and more hurt and pain and tragedy. Father, we thank you for your gracious gospel that you transform, that you heal, that you restore. And we thank you, specifically us as, as men, for the gifts you've given us in our wives. Help us elevate that in our own minds, the joy of pursuing and serving and sacrificing to serve another, our wife. Help us as a church continue to elevate that standard, not just in a self-righteous way, but in a joyful way. Forgive us for boring marriages. Forgive us for the way that a husband and a wife, the way, the times that we allow ourselves to grow distant relationally and emotionally. Father, you're aware of the unique seasons where couples are, those who are dating, those who are newlyweds, those who have been married for decades. We pray that in each of those seasons, your grace and your gospel would be evident in purity and in joy. We pray for our young men, particularly, that you would give them the strength to fight, that you would use their strength and their energy to serve during this season, and that you would move them toward growing and maturing so they would learn to find and serve and love their wife. Father, we are here as husbands to be a sanctifying influence on our wives, to show them the sacrificial love of Christ. Help us do that better. And when the world offers us fake temporary pleasures and hopes, may we respond not just with self-denial, but with the greater joy of fulfilling your calling in our lives. Bless us, Lord. As dark as this world will be in the years to come, we pray that we as your people would shine as lights. And as a result of our holiness, people will come to see and hear the message of Christ. We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen.